Yeah, I'm ready. Matt or Dabbit, welcome to the show. Super happy to have you here. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves for our listeners? Hey, what's up, Anthony? Yeah, thank you for having me and thanks for the intro. Yeah, my name is Nader Dabbit, and uh, currently I work as a senior developer advocate at Amazon Web Services on the front end web and mobile team. Awesome. And you're someone who has done quite a lot of podcasts in your time. You're someone who has even hosted a number of podcasts as well. So we're going to have plenty of links that we can kind of link to to get people to, to dive in more, but we'd really like to explore your ideas. Me especially, I like to explore your ideas around full stack serverless, because this is something that is really passionate for us. This is the FS Jam full stack, Jam stack, and we're very passionate about these types of full stack ideas. And I think there's a lot of interesting parallels between what you have been calling full stack serverless and what we call full stack Jam stack. So I'd really like to kind of tease apart those two things. So why don't we first get just your definition of what full stack serverless is? You know, I think the idea of, of what full stack serverless or even full stack cloud is, is kind of the idea that front end developers, the whole front end and uh, development environment has changed quite a bit over the last few years. And um, there's been growing complexity, but there's also been a big improvement in tooling. But at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the day, a front end developer is typically uh, building out a user interface. We're calling uh, an API, and we're going to be, you know, fetching data and then rendering it to the screen. We're going to be dealing with things like authentication and, and stuff like that on the client. But at the end of the day, you know, we're working with uh, with other people's APIs. And I think what we're starting to see in the cloud ecosystem, and um, and a lot of these things are falling into the category of serverless. And that's kind of why I kind of call it full stack serverless. They're making these uh, APIs and these uh, databases as a service and all of these different things more accessible to front-end developers by making them uh, more managed. They're bringing these managed solutions. Therefore, like a front-end developer, since we already know how to interact with these APIs, the thing that was limiting us from becoming full-stack developers maybe in the past was how do we actually build out and scale you know, a database, an API layer? How do we build out authentication on the back end? How do we build out and uh, integrate some type of storage solution? Since all these things are now becoming more and more managed, a front-end developer is able to not only build the front-end, but they're able to take advantage of some of these back-end technologies without having to build them from scratch. So they're able to use their existing skill set and build out these full-stack applications. And I think the serverless paradigm is making this possible because, again, serverless no longer means just functions as a service. It's kind of more now categorized as you know, managed services or, or some type of abstraction that is um, taking something that would be uh, need to be implemented yourself maybe in the past and kind of putting a nice abstraction layer on top of it, making it more accessible. So I think full stack serverless is kind of opening the door for front end developers to use their existing skill set to build out um, real real world robust scalable uh, applications, typically uh, using some type of cloud technology. Very cool. Yeah, it definitely jives with what we're doing here with with Redwood. Something that I'd be curious about is we find that it's enabling for front end developers, but I also notice it's a good kind of mid ground for like front end devs and back end devs to kind of meet in the middle. So I'm curious if the stuff you work on, if you also see kind of back end devs who see it as a way to get more connected to the front end, or do you think it's really just kind of front end devs coming in through these technologies? No, I mean, there, there's certain areas within these different systems that require in certain circumstances, a backend developer's expertise to kind of really understand how to do more advanced things. 
So I think like backend developers especially thrive in, in, in these types of situations. I think the real benefit um, is it's not only for front-end developers, you know, backend developers are, are kind of um, able to more quickly build stuff. But like, let's take for example, DynamoDB, that's a t technology that I kind of work with a lot. If you're a front-end developer, you can, you know, probably use some abstraction on top of DynamoDB to get up and running and build out maybe a CRUD application. But once you start getting into more advanced scenarios and you need to take advantage of like different data access patterns using uh, DynamoDB global secondary indexes, sort keys and things like that, it becomes a little more advanced. A backend developer would probably be able to spin up this full stack application using these technologies. But when they were um, then faced with this more advanced scenario, they would probably be able to solve it a lot faster. So kind of the way I kind of look at it is like with React Native, which is a different abstraction that I kind of have specialized in as well. I've noticed that JavaScript developers are able to, you know, get up and running really quickly building out a cross-platform mobile app using React Native. But a native developer is the one that would always need to be around to kind of come in and solve the really tough issues where you needed to bridge native code to JavaScript. I kind of see the same thing in a serverless um, environment or a serverless, you know, um, I guess workflow, maybe even a, a team that, that focuses in building this way. Like you have maybe some developers that are able to build full stack serverless by understanding the front end layer and understanding how to take advantage of some of these APIs. But you might also, of course, need to have a back end developer around because when you run, start running into these uh, more advanced scenarios, you still need someone around that kind of understands how to do this. And they, they would become, you know, especially, especially important there. But also feel like the, the back end developers can focus on more important stuff. Like they're no longer just building out uh, CRUD APIs. They're no longer just building out basic stuff over and over, like building the, the same authentication layer over and over. They're now able to focus on more um, important tasks and maybe more business differentiating uh, things than they would in the past. So I don't think it's like people sometimes hear this and they're like, oh, is this going to take away the job of a backend developer? No, I think it's going to make the backend developers even more important. Uh, while making the front-end developers more useful and able to do more things. But, but it also is, you know, while it's lowering the barrier to entry for cloud computing for front-end developers, when you come into this space as a brand new developer, it is just another thing that you end up probably seeing and, and, and it makes the whole front-end world maybe look a little bit more confusing, right? We have to be really careful about the way we talk about this stuff. It's it's not something that I feel like every front-end developer should get into, but I feel like once you become like a good, um, you, very, you feel comfortable as a front-end dev, this is a great next step to kind of accelerate your career and take it to the next step. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's the similar thing here is that I usually say don't jump straight into these kind of like meta frameworks until you've already like played around a little bit with something like a Create React app. Everyone hears about these tools, but you have to really educate people about like what they're for and like why you would even want to use it. And you have a, a pretty cool role doing DevRel and kind of leading like a DevRel team. So I want to talk a little bit about like what your role is and um, and you're on the, the Amplify team. So kind of like what you see your role is and what your kind of like day to day is like. AWS is kind of broken up into separate organizations. And, you know, you might think of Alexa that's one org. There's the containers organization, serverless. And then uh, my team is the front end web and mobile. And we're kind of like the only team, I would say, that is especially like specifically focused on front end and client side technologies. So we have a lot of front end devs, you know, within our organization, a lot of great engineers, 
they're building out uh, client-side SDKs and libraries for front-end developers, which kind of, I think, is um, something to throw out there because when I think people think of AWS, a lot of times they don't really think about front-end de development. But um, the majority, I would say of, I wouldn't say the majority, but a, a large number of people within our organization are front-end devs and they're building out front-end tooling and stuff like that. But um, when I started, AWS was a little over three years ago. Basically, the idea that they wanted to, the goal that they wanted to reach was they wanted to have some type of abstraction and some type of entry point into cloud computing for developers that were traditionally front-end developers or, or developers that kind of wanted to get up and running quickly with a, a backend on AWS, but they did not want to learn all of AWS cloud. That was kind of the idea. So when I joined Amplify was a client-side JavaScript library that had launched maybe one month prior. So I joined in January of 2018. Amplify was launched in December of 2017 or maybe November of 2017. And at the time it was just like a JavaScript uh, client-side library. But over the last couple of years, it's kind of evolved. And now it's also a CLI, which allows you to spin up cloud infrastructure. We now have a GUI, like a graphical user interface that allows you to go in create tables and, and uh, create authentication and kind of wire all this stuff up together. We have a hosting service for static sites. So it's kind of like grown into this whole, you know, tooling suite of things that allow people to kind of uh, do this sort of thing. And, you know, the role of a developer advocate, well, I joined as a developer advocate then, and I still am a developer advocate now. And, you know, the, uh, the idea I think depends on which team you're talking to, like what their goals are as a, as a developer advocate uh, group or, you know, as a developer advocate person. For us, it's kind of like changed over the course of the last couple of years. At first, no one really knew about Amplify at all. So we were kind of uh, focusing on awareness. And ultimately, we want to build something that makes people successful doing the thing that we want them to do, building apps you know, easily. So um, at first, no one knew about it. So we wanted to kind of get awareness. So we've gotten quite a bit of awareness now. Uh, our focus is, is now, I would say, mainly improving the um, developer experience and actually improving the product. So a lot of the work we're doing now is listening to customers, listening to companies and startups that are using this stuff and um, taking the feedback and channeling it back to the engineering teams and kind of uh, giving, uh, giving them the pain points that people are having so they can improve that and kind of uh, improving the product itself. Because I think at some point, once you get enough people using it, you don't really have to worry about as much the awareness piece because people are going to be um, sharing their good experiences as well as their bad experiences. And that kind of takes care of itself. So now we just want to make it extremely, extremely a good experience and listen to what people want and build that for them. One of the things I always like to ask is what's the use case? To what I understand, Amplify is a architectural platform that simplifies AWS through a CLI or a web interface. But my big questions are, is this something you need to adopt at the start or can you adopt later and incrementally? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's something that we get a lot. You can you can adopt it incrementally. You can adopt it all, you know, as a greenfield application, of course. You can also, I guess, use one or the other. You don't have to use everything that's part of Amplify. So when you kind of break it apart, um, it, let's say you're an app developer and you want to build something on AWS. There are a couple of things that you probably need to take into consideration. First of all, uh, what platforms are you targeting? So are you going to be uh, building for native iOS? Uh, are you going to be building for web and those sorts of things? The next thing you might take into consideration is how am I going to build my infrastructure and allow 
my team to iterate on that infrastructure. A lot of people, when they think of AWS, they might imagine going into the AWS console and clicking around and creating stuff. But in the real world and in most actual engineering teams in production and stuff, people are actually using infrastructure as code. And infrastructure as code can be written in a bunch of different ways. CloudFormation was, I think, one of the original ways that people were doing it. In the last you know, 10 years or so, there's been a lot of improvements there. You've seen things like the serverless framework come out, CDK, Terraform. Um, there's a few other really great ones out there as well from other companies. So what people are actually using now um, you know, in their actual production environment, for the most part, is some type of infrastructure as code provider. So you need to understand uh, what are you going to use for your infrastructure as code? How are you going to then interact with those services once they're created? How are you going to iterate on those things? So when you take those into consideration, you kind of can now look at the tooling that's available to you. And that's kind of where we're trying to fit both of those needs. First of all, the infrastructure as code. If you're a new developer to AWS and you look at a CloudFormation file, you might see a file that contains 1,000 or 10,000 or maybe even 100,000 lines of configuration. When I first started and looked at that, it was extremely confusing. Not only was it verbose, but it was also confusing because I didn't know what any of this stuff meant or what it did. And I think a lot of new developers that come into AWS get that same confusion. So the goal for our team is to kind of abstract that away and make it much easier to consume. And I think another, like I mentioned earlier, serverless framework and CDK do a pretty good job of this. But with Amplify, you actually don't have to really know anything about the underlying services themselves. We kind of instead walk you through in a CLI interface and uh, also now in a, in a graphical user interface. We, we give you more names that make a lot more sense to most developers. Instead of saying Amazon Cognito user pools and identity pools, which doesn't really mean anything to anyone if they've never heard of that, something like authentication makes sense, right? So we're like, okay, I want to add authentication. And then we just do that for you. And then we walk you through a bunch of steps, or we might give you some default configuration. And then we generate that infrastructure's code for you. And then you can deploy that using uh, an Amplify a CLI command called push. And that just deploys your infrastructure. And then you iterate and you push. And then you, you know, you're, you're pushing updates from the CLI. And we generate all of that um, infrastructure's code for you. We deploy the services and you're done at that point. And then you have the client libraries that need to interact. So when you're working with something like Cognito, which is authentication, or maybe you're working with uh, GraphQL, AppSync, or something like that, you need to take into consideration when you're making an API call, um, how do you manage the tokens? How do you manage the uh, refresh tokens and identity tokens and access tokens and all of that stuff? Um, how do you authenticate and authorize a user on the server? There's a lot of things that are taken into consideration there. So the client libraries will take care of a lot of that work for you as well, both on um, the native platforms like native iOS and Android, as well as um, cross-platform. So we support Flutter, React Native, and web. So the idea is kind of we're giving you the tooling both for the infrastructure's code provisioning and deploying, as well as the client side libraries. And we're also combining everything into a category-based naming system. Not only are you working with authentication layer on the CLI, but you're also using the same naming convention on the client. So you're like understanding, okay, so auth matches auth, and I want to auth.sign in very declarative and a very it's very understandable i think for most most people it is an abstraction like you mentioned on top of aws but it's a little bit different than i think versus if you look at some of the other abstractions and i'm not going to say that one's better than the other i think amplify is great but i'm also a big fan of serverless framework terraform cdk there's a huge pie and i think it depends on where you are as a developer what you what you like what makes sense for you and pick the tool that works best for the job 
Yeah, and I think what Chris is also getting at is he's curious, what's a canonical kind of app you would want to build? Is it good for like a shopping cart or a chat app or something of, of that manner? Like, what is it that you would like actually want to build with it? I mean, we see all types of customers, you know, building all types of stuff with it. Really, you, I mean, any any app that you could really think of, you could probably build with Amplify. I can give you a couple of examples. Orange Theory is a fitness company. In the beginning of the pandemic, they had to kind of switch their business model a little bit to be uh, having a remote version of their on-site, you know, fitness. So they wanted to kind of have a way for people to exercise at home, but still follow along. Um, they were able to build and, and deploy an application in about two weeks using Amplify. And this was something that they then scaled out to all of their customers that allowed them to exercise at home. This was a web application and this literally, it took them about two weeks to build. I met with a startup recently. They had an idea for a, uh, for a company. They wanted to build out something like, I would say a combination of Clubhouse and Twitch. It's kind of hard to explain exactly, but they needed a combination of live streaming. They needed a combination of that along with, with a voice and they needed a, a chat and they needed it to be real time. And they were able to build out their prototype in about three weeks and about two and a half months later, they were, uh, they landed like three and a half million dollars in funding. So I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people that you see building with Amplify are looking to get something um, over the line quickly. And they also, a lot of times are working with a small team or their uh, team that is new to cloud and they want to just kind of get up and running quickly. There are some limitations of Amplify as well. So let's say that you want to build out, I don't know, the next Facebook or something. You're probably going to run into a point where you're going to be limited about what Amplify offers. But under the hood, since Amplify supports CloudFormation or uses CloudFormation, you can extend what Amplify does. So a lot of times people will, will reach that limitation and then they'll end up having to write their own CloudFormation. It is a little bit uh, tough though right now. And that's kind of one of the fo focuses of this year. We wanna make it extensible and kind of make it able to support all of AWS Cloud. But I think when you think of a data layer, that's kind of the main thing people are interested in when they're building an app. Like how does my data layer look? Because when you think of a modern application, you kind of might take into considerations things like I need to have like these types of data access patterns, but I might also need to have some type of real-time functionality. I might need some type of offline functionality and how can I like build this using this data layer. The main data layer that App, uh, Amplify supports is AppSync and AppSync is a managed GraphQL service. We have a bunch of large customers now using this in production. I think Ticketmaster was one of the first big customers that were, was using it in beta. And it scales out to like tens of millions of connected uh, clients in a GraphQL subscription implementation. So a lot of people are using it for real time. And I think that um, anyone that needs to build out an application that needs real time, this is a great choice for it. Since AppSync is a GraphQL layer, you can actually map your GraphQL operations to any AWS service, any underlying AWS database, but also you can uh, map it to other third-party microservices. Mm -hmm. So you can uh, take your GraphQL query or mutation, map it to an existing microservice or an existing database living somewhere else. So let's say you're using MongoDB hosted somewhere else. People are still using uh, GraphQL as that API layer. When you build an application, say we take a very typical application, how much functionality would you say AppSync and Amplify well, it's just Amplify, handles for you. So, you know, user logins is one, but obviously you said about subscriptions and live processing of data is another. 
when you look at like the AWS suite of services, there's like 200, I think over 200 at this point. I don't know the exact number. We support like a small subset of those. So we support about, I guess, 12 different services directly. But the one of the services that we support is Lambda. Within Lambda, a lot of people are using that as kind of the escape hatch into pretty much any other service. So like the main things that I would say that people are working with would be uh, the GraphQL API layer, a REST API layer, which is a combination of API Gateway, Lambda, and DynamoDB, or just API Gateway and Lambda. Uh, authentication, which is Amazon Cognito. Storage, which is Amazon S3. Functions directly, so you can use Lambda functions for other stuff like triggers. So let's say someone updates something in your database, you want to trigger a function or whatever, you can do that. Um, we also have hosting, so web hosting, static site hosting, stuff like that. We support machine learning services, so about a dozen or so machine learning services are supported from Amplify. One other one that's kind of interesting, it's XR, which would be like virtual reality, Amazon Sumerian. Haven't seen a lot of usage there. That's kind of like, a, uh, in my opinion, not like a something that a lot of people use in a, in a real world application, you know, for the most part. A few others, I guess, push notifications. PubSub, but but I would say like, to me, like the most interesting thing, not only about uh, Amplify, but let's say like Amplify never existed at all. AppSync is the is the data layer. I think I'm super interested in, in, in ideas like AppSync and I would really be interested and hopeful to see other cloud providers building these similar things because I think they're super powerful. With a GraphQL API that is managed by a cloud provider, you have the ability to map any GraphQL operation to any of the hundreds of cloud services that are out there directly. And I think that um, this is something I'm actually putting together some talks and a blog post about because when I first started using AWS, I saw all these really cool things, but I didn't know how to actually build APIs around them. Like how do I actually use this machine learning service? It was really complicated because uh, me as a front end developer, I'm always looking for the entry point. Like how do I send a call to this thing, right? And it was really confusing because the documentation at AWS isn't that good, in my opinion, uh, in general, and a lot of other people's opinion too. It's not just my opinion. It's getting better for sure. And but like to be to be honest, you have to be you have to be honest, right? Anyway, I'm interested. Like, how do I actually interact with all of these different services? Well, it turns out that GraphQL is like a perfect way to do this because you can map your operations into Lambda, and from Lambda you can grant permissions to talk to pretty much any service. So I was able to build out, like, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, I'm actually going to be releasing this hopefully soon, a really basic uh, Clubhouse clone that I was able to get the base functionality up and running uh, within about two hours using a service called Amazon Chime. And Amazon Chime turns out all you need to do is flip on like a, an IAM permission from Lambda to be able to start interacting with it. So stuff like that to me is like super powerful and super cool. And I'm really excited about those types of uh, data layers. So what you mean by AppSync is AWS has all this functionality, multiple services, etc. And you use GraphQL as a way to programmatically talk to each of these AWS services. That's right. Yeah, we've actually talked about AppSync in a previous episode, episode nine. I had done kind of a deep dive into it because I agree with you. I think it's a, it's a really interesting technology and it sits at a very interesting intersection 
of a lot of this stuff. It seemed to have come out of the mobile world, but it has become more of a thing that is being used by also front-end web developers. And you had actually tweeted about this once, how GraphQL is something that, you know, a lot of mobile developers had been using, and now, you know, some front-end developers are using. And I had responded to that saying, like, I've never done mobile development at all, and GraphQL is, like, a huge part of my tool chain. So I'd be curious if you have any perspective on why these tools that were so useful for mobile are kind of starting to leak out into these other areas. That's a good discussion point. So like, yeah, for sure, when we first started AppSync, the main goal, and actually the main goal for our team was mobile. Like for a while, we were called AWS Mobile, actually. We thought that this was a perfect layer for mobile apps, mainly for the combination of the offline persistence layer, the real-time, and the ability to send these smaller payloads across the wire, making it you know more performant and stuff like that. But I think that all of these performance gains and all of these features are very you know good for mobile developers, but they're good for any type of development. And, and the development experience that comes along with GraphQL is really good, just by the simple fact that the sheer number of web developers is, is much larger, larger than mobile developers. I think that we're just seeing that overflow of people adopting it because of that. And um, also a lot of people are building responsive web applications that might have different data fetching and different type of views and stuff like that based on the screen size. That also makes a lot of sense, I think, in those scenarios. But I don't know. I, I don't really have a good answer. I think that, you know, when you have something that works really good as an API layer, it doesn't really matter where you consume it. So web developers are noticing that and they're just choosing it. Yeah, I was just kind of curious to ask you that because I know you've done a lot of a lot of mobile development in your time as well. You used to host, you know, React Native Radio. So My first, you could say, adventure into AWS was with a mobile app. Yeah, I can see how we've borrowed a lot of this technology, but like, it's also useful for the web as well. And then you go, oh yeah, so it is. And then we've started going down that way. My last question is, say if you're a small business or a hobbyist or any type of business, what does it cost to use Amplify? Is it generous free tier on top of AWS or just each product has its free tier, obviously. So uh, the Amplify tool chain and framework, all that is completely free. It's just uh, it's just open source tooling on top of existing AWS services. The only service that is Amplify that, that actually is a service that costs money is the hosting service. And let's say that you wanted to just um, connect your GitHub repository and host your static site or your website, then that would be a service that would have its own cost related to it. There is a free tier. The first year, there's a free tier fairly generous. If you're interested in, in learning more about pricing, you can pretty much Google Amplify hosting pricing and that should show up exactly there. You know, when you're using Amplify, you're going to be using these underlying services like DynamoDB and AppSync and Lambda. So you would need to understand like which services your app are using and then you could Google those prices or just go to the pricing pages and uh, should show up. But I think the most important point about pricing is that pretty much everything in Amplify is considered serverless or using a serverless model. So the only things that are not serverless are gonna be, we, we also support containers, which I didn't uh, mention, and we also support Elasticsearch. So those two things are not gonna be serverless in the sense that if you deploy something, you're gonna be paying a monthly fee probably or monthly uh, cost for those things to be uh, hosted. But everything else is gonna be free unless you actually have users. So if you don't have any users in your DynamoDB table and in, in, in your AppSync API, it's probably gonna cost you nothing. I think Cognito has a free tier of like 50,000 users or something like that. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, if it's an abstraction on top of AWS, you probably would have a finance officer that you would have to give them a very complex website to say how to work out how much AWS will cost. Well, are you saying like if someone wanted to build um, something using Amplify and they want to know the cost? Yeah, it's quite hard to predict. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say it's just like any any AWS deployment. You just look at the services that you're using, and you can kind of get a general idea of the cost. Um, I think one way that you can, I mean, there's probably way better ways to do this, but one way to do this for me to kind of uh, be able to piece together different uh, services is just to make a spreadsheet and say, okay, I'm using AppSync, I'm using uh, DynamoDB, I'm going to have this many uh, API requests and this many put requests, this many Git requests, and this many users. And um, they're going to be using like one hour of usage a week, and you can kind of get a general idea. There's actually a pricing on some of these areas or some of these services where they kind of like put together an example application that ties together a bunch of stuff, kind of gives you a general idea. But I mean, you typically are in the really cheap, inexpensive area until you get into the tens of thousands of users and for the most part. AWS spreadsheet. <laughs> you had mentioned way better uh, ways to do that, like services or something, but like, yeah, that works for me. You had mentioned um, containers versus serverless. And this is something we actually had asked Swix about when he was on. And I'd be curious to get your perspective as well, how you would think about when you would want to use containers versus serverless with Amplify, or if you think there's kind of like it's good use cases for one or the other, if it kind of comes down more so to, to personal preference or how you how you think about that. Yeah, I think it just depends on the person and what their philosophy is and what their expertise is and what your team is comfortable with. I don't think there's you know a right answer for everyone, right? But for me, the right answer is I, I'm a big fan of serverless and I feel like, and all the research suggests that the industry is moving in that direction. So I'm going to be focusing on that. And if I'm going to be working for a company and if I'm building out an application, I'm going to take the serverless first approach. Anything that I cannot fit into that paradigm, then I will then, you know, spin up some type of server somewhere and do that, that long work or whatever the reason is that I need to do that. But that's just my approach. I don't think that's the right approach for everyone, but I'm a big fan of serverless and I'm a big fan of like finding something that works, specializing in it, getting really good at it. That way you can pretty much solve any problem with your skill set if you're focused on improving that skill set over a long period of time versus trying to kind of understand uh, everything. Yeah, that's kind of my approach. Serverless first, anything that can't fit into um, the serverless paradigm. So maybe you have like a really long running task or something, you might spin up uh, a server somewhere to manage that. Yeah, that makes sense. I always say serverless by default is how I usually think of it. So it starts off serverless and then you can kind of branch out from there if need be. But I also understand why someone would want to start just like, you know, go container first, because in that sense, your whole application is contained at the beginning and then you can break off different functions, whereas starting off serverless by default or serverless first it's not really super straightforward how to how to do that unless you have a framework that's like geared specifically towards setting up for that in the first place but that's kind of what i see a lot of the the amplify services doing because you have all of this infrastructure code stuff baked into it that is to me what is kind of makes it easier to get into this serverless world you can kind of do the copy and pray thing but it's it actually kind of works because as you say the code creates a deterministic rendering of your your resources so it becomes code that is very portable very shareable and you can get these like full applications spun up with it 
with it really quickly. So yeah, it's it's super interesting stuff that you're that you're working on is super relevant to all the stuff we're doing here with FS Jam frameworks. Uh, the last thing I'd like to talk about is you have a series of tutorials that I think is really cool where you show how to connect different front-end frameworks and even meta frameworks to amplify services and the stuff that kind of spins around the amplify world. So I'd be curious to hear how you think about those tutorials, how you go about picking projects, how you kind of prioritize that. Part of the work as a developer advocate aligns really well with the things I like to do anyway. <laughs> I like to tinker with new things and try new stuff out. So it's pretty cool that I get to do this first of all, like as a job, but I mean, I typically do a combination of listening to what people are asking me to do or their, uh, the questions that people have on GitHub, along with the curiosity that I have and the trends that I see happening in the industry. So for instance, uh, I thought I started using Next.js. I thought it was really cool. Started seeing some momentum there. I was like, okay, so let me create some, some content around this and learn how to use it pretty well. Now I feel like I know Next.js really well and a lot of those videos have done really well. So it kind of just depends. It's typically a combination of feedback from customers that are wanting to learn how to do stuff in a certain framework, along with the things that I'm interested in and um, maybe where I see the industry headed. Very cool, very cool. All right, well, I think we're getting close to the end of our time. Yeah, thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you for all the work you do. Like your work is really a huge, huge inspiration to me and like seeing you kind of expand out and build this whole team now of other badass developer advocates is is really cool. Thanks for like always being out there and being like a really positive presence in the, in the industry and, you know, communicating these ideas and, and all that stuff. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate the kind words. I had a question. Uh, do you play the cello? Yeah, it's the upright bass. So it's um, there's multiple levels. So the cello is kind of like the the tenor instrument in the orchestra, and the string bass is like kind of it's twice the size. So that's why they call it a double bass. Actually, so it's kind of hard to tell from the pictures. Usually, when you see someone play a cello, they usually have it between their legs. Whereas if you see in my picture, I have like the headstock is like up above my head because it's like six feet tall. I think that's it's kind of how you can yeah, tell the difference. Yeah, I was kind of curious. Yeah. I your, um, I've seen your picture so many times, and I've always wanted to ask you that yeah. question. So. <laughs> cool. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, and why don't you go ahead and just let the listeners know how they can find you, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Yeah, I'm Dabbit3 on Twitter. I'm uh, Natter on Clubhouse. I am Dabbit3 on GitHub. And uh, that's pretty much where I've been hanging out lately, those three places. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Have a good uh, rest of your day. And thanks for listening for anyone that checked this out.